Hello and greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. There's an almost invisible group of people who prove of great importance and support for Jesus during his ministry. They're mentioned sometimes in the gospel narratives. And in some instances, uh, they're mentioned more often than some of the less noted among the apostles. In many ways, these people are hiding in plain sight. They're present, but they're not often mentioned, and unfortunately often neglected in our study, preaching, and teaching. And these are the women who followed Jesus. According to Luke 8 and verse 2, some of these women followed Jesus wherever he went. They were likely present throughout his ministry, and many even financially supported the endeavor. These are the women who would prepare meals and serve food. They'd watched the Lord Jesus suffer and die on the cross. They saw him buried, and they had come back to finish anointing his body on the first day of the week, as we can see throughout the gospel narratives. Many of these same women would remain with the disciples after Jesus' resurrection, being devoted to prayer. And so we do well to explore what we can know about these female disciples of Jesus. And we're going to begin with one of the most famous and later controversial, Mary Magdalene. What do we learn about Mary Magdalene from Scripture? What later stories were circulated about her? And what can we gain from her in terms of encouragement from the Scriptures? We're first acquainted with Mary Magdalene in Luke 8 and verse 2. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Husa, uh, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So her name is Mary. Uh, it's Miriam in Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, actually, in Matthew 28.1, Miriam is used. And she's called Magdalene. Now, Magdalene is generally understood as a geographical reference, that she's from Magdala, a village on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee, perhaps mentioned in Matthew 15.39. Luke's phrasing, though, may indicate that she was called Magdalene from Hebrew Migdal, tower elevated. Uh, in some of the later Jewish literature, we have uh, hairdressers called Hamegadela Sarnasha. So it's possible that that's Magdalene is coming out of that, that she could have been some kind of hairstylist, or that she's from Magdala. At least in part, she follows Jesus because he has cast out seven demons from her. That's also mentioned in Mark 16 and verse 9. She's listed as one of the women who provided for Jesus in his ministry. So therefore, she's a woman of some means somehow. Now, this is all the biographical information that we're given about Mary Magdalene. In Matthew 27, 55 and 56, in Luke 23, 48 and 49, and John 19, 25 and 27, Mary Magdalene is listed among the women who watched Jesus suffer and die on the cross. Now, most of the disciples, who are the uh, male disciples, except for John, had fled in Matthew 26, 56, in parallel accounts, because uh, uh, they were probably scared, no doubt. But also, if uh, they had maintained their standing with Jesus, there would have been a cross for them as well. Women were not perceived as much of a political threat, and so they were able to be present for the experience without the fears that the men would have. Now, Mary Magdalene is also listed among the women who watched Joseph and Nicodemus bury Jesus in Joseph's tomb and as preparing spices and aloes for anointment in Matthew 27, 61, Mark 15, 47, and Luke 23, 55, and 56. And they did that because they intended on returning to the tomb at the next available opportunity, which would take place after the Sabbath, 
which would be on the morning of the first day of the week, to finish that work of anointing his body. And this is what begins the accounts in Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 1 through 3, and Luke 24, 1. Now, as they're going along in Mark 16, 3, the women wonder how they're going to move the stone. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they arrive, they see the stone is moved, they see angels in white, and they are to go and tell the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. In Mark 16, 8, they're just fearful, and that ends the story. In Matthew 28, and verse 8, they're fearful, but they gladly go and tell the apostles. In Luke 24, 9 through 11, they go tell the apostles, but it's like an idle story to them. They don't really believe it. Now, in all of these accounts, Mary Magdalene is listed first among the women. But in none of them is she alone, and no one actually sees Jesus in the resurrection at that time in those accounts. It's in John's account that Mary Magdalene really comes to the fore in the story as told in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. In the first two verses we read, Now on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she went and ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So she goes and she sees what's going on, and she's, she's, she runs back. She sees that the, the tomb is open and there's no body there, and she has not assumed there's a resurrection. She assumes somebody has taken the body. They don't know where it is. And so Peter and John run and find what's going on here. And they believe, they don't really recognize what's going on yet. Now in verse 11, we pick up again with Mary. She has stood weeping outside the tomb. She had come back at some point. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell us where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Take me, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So we have this very compelling portrayal of Mary Magdalene, a woman who is very distraught because of the circumstances. She's coming to serve. Because that she's a first witness of the empty tomb, But for her, it's not a source of joy, but a source of distress. She's agonizing. She wants to take care of the body of Jesus. And there's this great moment of revelation and all the emotion that it would have demanded. There's no body to anoint, that he is risen, that all that he had said took place. And yet this is the last time that Mary Magdalene is mentioned in Scripture. Now in Acts 1 and verse 14, we're told that the women were with the disciples in the upper room active in prayer. And we have every right to presume that Mary Magdalene would have been among them. But after Jesus' resurrection story here, Mary Magdalene fades from the written record and enters into tradition. So Mary Magdalene plays a very prominent role among the women who follow Jesus. But there's a lot left unrevealed about her. And so because of that combination, a lot of tradition starts surrounding her uh, after the uh, end of the apostolic era. 
For a lot of early Christians, Mary Magdalene was the apostle to the apostles. She's the one sent, which is the Greek word apostolos, to proclaim to the apostles the good news of Jesus' resurrection. She was believed to be a woman of some means, but great virtue, consistent with the elevation of chastity as a supreme virtue uh, in the centuries immediately following Jesus' death and the death of the apostles. Now, uh, many traditions hold that she died in Ephesus. We can see this in Gregory of Tours uh, concerning miracles, chapter 1, book 1, chapter 30. And from there, the stream kind of go, the, stream, the traditions kind of go in at least two directions. So one prominent direction is what we see among the Gnostics. The Gnostics are those who synthesize Christianity with Greek philosophy. They, and they speculate about Mary Magdalene in many of the same ways that they had speculated about a lot of the apostles. So the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, infamously ends with Peter asking to, for Jesus to exclude Mary because women are not worthy of life. Jesus says she will be made into a male so she can obtain it. In Gospel of Thomas, uh, verse 114, and it tells you what Greeks thought about women. But very surprisingly, other Gnostic uh, texts tend to elevate Mary's standing. Uh, in a work called Pisisophia, uh, Faith Wisdom, uh, m- over half the questions that are asked of Jesus come from Mary. The Gospel of Philip suggests that Mary was Jesus' companion, his favorite disciple, one whom he kissed often, and that would provoke jealousy among the male apostles. In fact, there's a whole Gospel of Mary written by the Gnostics, believed to be the Magdalene, where she provides secret revelations and visions of the resurrection and such like, in a way that would presume that Mary was esteemed higher than the Apostles. Now, these Gnostic speculations are going to provide a fodder for a lot of the more modern ideas and distortions of who Mary Magdalene is. But uh, that's at least the basis upon which all later things will be considered, and also gives us an idea of how Mary was treated in those traditions. The other way it kind of is taken is in the early medieval period and throughout the medieval period, the idea of the composite Magdalene. What that means, because when you read the Gospels, there's a lot of women named Mary or Miriam in it. And there's other women who are talked about who are left anonymous. And so it's easy to understand the confusion. Sometimes we we can even trip up. And and it was very easy in medieval speculations to start conflating characters, seeing uh, the same person uh, involved in two or three different things. Now, Pope Gregory the Great, in his 33rd homily, did a very major disservice to Mary Magdalene, and in fact entirely changed the way in which she was seen in the Western Church, and is seen in the Western Church to this day. What Gregory does is that he conflates Mary Magdalene with the sinful woman of Luke 7, 36-50, the one who goes in the house of Simon the Pharisee, where Jesus is at, and... Um, washes his feet. And Simon's like, if he knew this one was a sinner, he wouldn't let her do this. And then Jesus kind of explains that she had been sinned much and she was being repentant, and so she was going to be forgiven. Uh, Gregory also conflated Mary Magdalene with Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who anointed Jesus' feet in John chapter uh, 12. And he allegorized the seven demons, of which Jesus cast out of her in Luke 8, as the seven main vices. And he does this for what we could say are virtuous reasons, in the sense that he's trying to uh, glorify her penitence. And in fact, Mary Magdalene, for the rest of the medieval era, is seen as kind of the exemplar of penitence. That this is somebody who was really sinful, but turned their life around fully to follow Jesus. But it's in this way that Mary Magdalene is reputed to be a prostitute before she began to follow Jesus. Now, this is partly based on Gregory's homily, although there was some speculation about her being a repentant sinner beforehand. 
It's also an attempt to try to figure out how she could be a woman of means enough to support Jesus, but also able to follow Jesus around without having a husband or what we might consider other domestic duties. And the idea would be that a woman following Jesus around like this would be scandalous. Now, later medievalists speculate she wasn't even a prostitute, that in fact she was just a woman who had gained her wealth because uh, maybe her husband died young or maybe uh, she just inherited from her parents, and she just went and participated in all kinds of sexual even behavior just for the fun of it, just for the pleasure. She just uh, really enjoyed that. Now, let's be very clear about this. There's absolutely no biblical evidence or reason to think that the sinful woman of Luke 7, 36-50, is either Mary Magdalene or, for that matter, Mary of Bethany. And there's no reason to believe that Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, is the same person as Mary Magdalene. And in fact, even the Roman Catholic Church, in which this whole uh, identification originally took place, has moved away from that identification. Now, this is quite the departure from what had been something held by tradition, but it's important to know this because this composite Magdalene was the way she was seen into the 16th century, even among some of the Protestant reformers. Now, it's also in the medieval period that some begin to speculate that Mary Magdalene spent her last years in some kind of penitential asceticism, kind of uh, trying to atone for her past sins, in the south of France. Or, uh, consistent with the idea that she was uh, also the brother, Mary, the sister of Mary, uh, Martha and Lazarus, uh, that they all set out in a boat to escape Israel and washed up in the south of France. Uh, others took some ancient claims that the wedding in Cana was actually between Mary Magdalene and John, the apostle, and suggest that John left Mary at the altar to follow Jesus, and we would imagine she would follow likewise. And these are all various medieval traditions uh, which have no basis in scripture or in, in any verifiable historical evidence. It just goes to show how Mary has been seen and for what reason. And this hasn't gotten better in our current age because there's all kinds of exotic speculations now uh, coming about Mary Magdalene based upon everything that's come before us. Uh, feminist interpretation of scripture has become quite popular, and so many have tried to suggest that Mary Magdalene is the beloved disciple in John, and that's also drawing on Gnostic speculations. Others uh, want to see Mary Magdalene as an empowered apostle in her own right, and the reason we don't hear about her after this is because she's been suppressed by later church authorities. Perhaps there's a bit more productive way we can look at her, though, as a representative or spokeswoman of the women who follow Jesus. Uh, perhaps you're acquainted with the Holy Blood, Holy Grail hypothesis uh, through the way that uh, it got popularized, a book called The Da Vinci Code. And this is, of course, the idea that Jesus and Mary were actually husband and wife, that Jesus didn't really die but went with Mary to France, and that uh, their children, or the royal bloodline, was really what was the, behind the search of Holy Grail. If you found the Holy Grail, you found the Holy Bloodline that you are descended from Jesus himself and Mary Magdalene. We can see how that would come out of combining some Gnostic ideas and these traditions about the south of France, and all of a sudden you've got this uh, completely uh, out-left-field story that has no grounding in any kind of uh, reality or fact, but something that people love to think about because it's exotic, it's different, and it uh, is completely contrary to what uh, has been received in the wisdom of the church for generations. But it's in this way that Mary Magdalene really becomes anything to anyone. Uh, depending on your viewpoint, she's a libertine, a whore, or a virgin. She's a feminist or a model of feminine penitence and virtue. She's the greatest among the apostles or Jesus' wife, lover, or concubine, depending on how you want to look at it. And so we, a lot of people have seen much more in Mary Magdalene and what they've wanted to see in Mary Magdalene more than anything that's actually revealed. So with 
all of that in mind, what are we supposed to actually say about Mary Magdalene? Well, first and foremost, we need to admit that there's not a lot that we know about her, and we should be careful about rushing into speculation. You know, what do we know about Mary Magdalene? She very likely is from Magdala, but it could be actually she's just a hairdresser. Uh, she has some means to support Jesus' ministry. She's able to travel around with him. Uh, she followed Jesus. She was associated with other women following Jesus. She saw his burial, his his death ceremony, his burial place, and was among the first to see the empty tomb. Now, there's a lot of questions that we have based upon what we do know. And they're very valid questions, but we're not going to have the ability to answer them. Like, for instance, where did she come up with all of this money? How was she able to follow Jesus everywhere he went? What kind of service or ministry did Mary Magdalene participate in after uh, Jesus' ascension and during the age of the church? As we've seen, there's so many different answers people have put forward, and we could just go against them with other possibilities. We can make Mary Magdalene out to be a formerly scandalous woman or as a woman who is always a model of virtue. Uh, she was somebody who... Uh, would become something great and suppressed, or maybe she just continued her role of service and just was unremarked upon. We just don't know. On the other hand, we do need to rebuke the speculation that has taken place because it has led to such toxic views about Mary Magdalene. Because there's no biblical ground or basis upon which to conflate Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman of Luke 7, or Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. There's no evidence that she was a prostitute of any sort at any time. She could have come by her means honestly through inheritance or from a parent or husband. Maybe her husband's still alive and blessed her journeys with Jesus. Who knows? We aren't there. Uh, we need to remember that Gnostic speculations are, have no apostolic basis. They come from heretical group writing centuries after Jesus' death. There's no biblical evidence to suggest that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had any sort of romantic or sexual relationship or that he favored her over the apostles. Uh, the conflation that you see in Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that you also see in the Da Vinci Code, is something that both Orthodox Christian, small o, and the Gnostics would both reject for different reasons. But it's definitely not an idea or something that would have been put forward in the 1st, 2nd, or 3rd centuries. So really, there is no ground upon which to exalt her as the ultimate demonstration of penitence. There's no reason to believe she went to the south of France over any other location in the Roman Empire. Even the idea that she would end up in Ephesus is very shaky. Why should we assume she ever left Judea and Galilee? But what are we supposed to say about Mary Magdalene? Is, is all of this just to be spending time to refute false ideas without being able to really gain anything from what we do have? Well, that would be very disappointing. And ultimately, not helpful. Because, actually, Mary Magdalene is a wonderful example of faith in action. Jesus cast out demons from her, and she trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. She stood there and watched Jesus die. Believing him to be Lord. And watched him die. She saw where he was buried. She wanted to continue to honor him by anointing his body further. Note her concern on that first day of the week in John 20. She doesn't have any inclination to the resurrection yet. She wants the body of Jesus given to her so she can honor in death the one who gave her hope in life. Now, we, we are left to imagine her wonder and amazement and joy as she realizes that Jesus, everything that Jesus said came to pass when he revealed himself in the resurrection to her. But look at how throughout that whole episode she's distraught because she loved Jesus deeply. She's very distressed by the circumstances. She went to anoint the body. I mean, 
if he's really the Messiah and he's dead in the tomb, he's not really the Messiah. Now, there's a lot of other false messiahs who died and were put in tombs. And so for Mary, Mary goes to, to anoint the body. You know, you don't see the disciples, other disciples walking around, waiting around. Some of the other women are with uh, her in other accounts. But you don't see the other the guys there. They, they are distraught in the upper room. Um, they had loved Jesus too, no doubt. But their first inclination uh, was to deliberate perhaps on what went wrong or something of the sort, was not to devote effort to taking care of Jesus' body. And then, of course, she's happy but fearful, absorbing the implications of Jesus' resurrection after she sees him. Who else in the New Testament is portrayed as in such a realistic way? As vulnerable, trusting, and processing the experience in real time. John has done a masterful job of working us through that situation so that we, we are in real time experiencing what Mary experienced. But that's Mary Magdalene. We don't get that opportunity with a lot of other people in the New Testament. Mary Magdalene maintained faith in action. She went out to minister to Jesus, just as Jesus had ministered to her. And for all of this, she receives a unique honor. She is the first apostle of the resurrection. Jesus sent Mary to tell the apostles of his resurrection. Think about that. He did not go and appear to them first, which he could have done. And he would eventually do. He had Mary tell them. She had gone out to take care of him, and so she becomes the one sent with the good news that Jesus is risen. Now, do not misunderstand. This does not mean that she maintains a role of authority as one of the twelve, but it does speak to the standing of female followers of Jesus, that a dedicated female follower of Jesus was the first to see him in the resurrection and was given the right to tell the rest. So that's Mary Magdalene in Scripture and in later speculation. There's a lot that we've had to dismiss as basis speculation and conflation, uh, much more than we can actually say for certain about Mary Magdalene. But what can be said is a very powerful testimony. The value that ha exists for those women who serve the Lord Jesus, the example she provides of faith and action, the dignity and honor of serving as the first apostle of the good news of Jesus' resurrection. And that is why we all, male or female, do well to maintain a love for Jesus and a devotion to his cause, just like Mary Magdalene did. We hope that you've been benefited by this, and if you have any questions or comments about some of the things we've talked about, maybe you'd like to discuss these things further. Maybe you uh, would like to consider other conversations and other topics, or like to study the Bible, or you have prayer requests, or you'd like a Bible correspondence course. Maybe you'd like to visit with us. If we can be of any service, please check us out online at VeniceChurchChrist.org. You can also find us on social media. If I can be of any service to you, you can visit me at my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Again, thank you, and have a great day.